church. Uh, I have been gone for a month. It was kind of an interesting scenario. I had some leave scheduled uh, to take, but then a couple weeks before that, I ran across somebody who had COVID, so I had to do a 14-day quarantine, so it turned into a month. That was kind of awesome. Um, it's like two weeks free leave, yeah. Um, but it was also a little bit weird. Uh, thankfully, we had Pastor Bob uh, Claycamp coming in from uh, he's a retired pastor, and he just wants to bless churches, so have him coming in and teaching was kind of awesome. Uh, what you may not know, although this service probably does know, I was sneaking in on Sunday nights and sitting in the back and listening uh, so that I could still enjoy fellowshipping with this church. This is still my church, even if I'm not preaching. Uh, but then in the mornings, I had a chance to visit other churches, so I was able to get over to Calvary South one Sunday. I went to Harriman Chapel one Sunday, and I went to the Calvary in Laramie one Sunday. Uh, just to be able to sit under some other pastors' teaching. Really enjoyed that. Uh, Then the end of my time off, uh, Sheila and I got to go to a conference uh, in Aurora, Colorado. We go every year. It's just a conference for anybody that's involved in ministry. They uh, host it every year. And uh, a little bit different this year with COVID. They have much stronger restrictions in Colorado. Uh, So we had to, you know, the whole time we were there, uh, we had to be wearing our masks and all that kind of stuff. But um, Uh, really kind of a powerful moment for me at that conference. Uh, The first speaker came up, the pastor. He was also leading worship, uh, but he was going to be speaking that night as well. And so when he came to speak, uh, he is from uh, a church in California. And he was like weepy as he came to the pulpit. And I thought, well, man, you haven't said anything good yet. Like, what's going on here, you know? Uh, He just said, you don't understand. It's been seven months since I've been able to meet with my church because of the restrictions that they have there and the concerns that are going on. Uh, and just again, just realizing what a privilege it is for us. Uh, then another thing uh, that I was able to, to witness there, uh, I thought just a powerful statement. So Pastor Ed has these little uh, notes of encouragement on the back of his seats throughout the sanctuary that he put up when they started meeting again. He has them throughout his building uh, as well, just to kind of uh, help people kind of check their attitudes as they go into the sanctuary, uh, in particular thinking about, you know, um, the COVID and how we're supposed to respond within the church. Uh, my favorite one, though, was he said, humility over preference. Uh, such a powerful thing that each one of us are going to have our preferences. Each one of us thinks this is how it should be done or that should be how it should be done. Uh, but just that great reminder for us to have humility in that. I have my preference, but out of humility, I'm not going to attack your preference, or I'm not going to go after your preference. Uh, and uh, it's, it's this balance that all the churches really are trying to figure out. Everybody's trying to figure out what it looks like, uh, but this, this issue of, 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 of uh, safety and sanity, like somewhere in the middle there is like the right thing. We're trying to figure out what that is, trying to do all of those things. I would say it another way. I would say uh, it's liberty versus love. Like I, I want people to have liberty, but I also want people to love one another. And how does that all come together in this? Uh, that was brought back to my mind uh, as I came back uh, to Cheyenne in a couple of ways. First, uh, last uh, week, uh, second service, I pulled in just at the end of service, just kind of see, I just wanted to peek, and the parking lot was packed, and I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> that can't be good, you know, like, <laughs> that means there's, a, you know, when we first opened back up, it was, it was not that many people, but it was, you know, it was 100 initially, then 200, then 300, and now we're into 400 people on a Sunday, and now all of a sudden, it's like, now there's not as much room. Sunday night has alleviated that a little bit, um, but uh, started to give me just a little bit of, of worries there about that, uh, but also had a few people contact me that just said that uh, they're not going to be back until all this is over because they tried to come, uh, and people were essentially harassing them because of 
wearing masks or things like that. And I just thought, you know, what's the point of that? And then I realized I'm kind of that bad guy. I'm just like, I'm sarcastic. And so I could totally see myself not trying to make a political point or anything, but just, you know, walking up to him and be like, hey, what is it? Are we, under, are we being wrong? You know, just, just being a goofball. And I actually remember that I had done that with the uh, somebody at church here that I had seen them. They had been here for three services in a row, and the first two services, they're wearing the mask. The next one, they're not wearing their mask. I'm like, what, is it safe now? We don't have to wear the mask? You just change your opinion just like that? And he's like, no, I'm just sick of people getting in my face about it, and so I'm just going to stick it in my pocket. I say all that to say just uh, if you're more comfortable with a mask, wear a mask. If somebody's picking on you, point them to me. I'll mess up. up. That'll be fun. Um, <laughs> use some of my military training and uh, bark them into submission, I guess. But um, and now you might have noticed I've been wearing a mask this week. Uh, and the reason is my son, Caleb, uh, lives in Laramie right now. He's going to University of Wyoming. But he uh, got COVID this last, I don't know, it's, it's, he's had it for about 10 days now. But um, right at the beginning of that, we saw each other in passing. And so then I thought, well, I don't think I have it. I've been checking my temperature every day a couple times to make sure it's not going up. I don't have any symptoms. But I thought, just in case... I'm going to put a mask on because I don't want to get you guys sick. And I think that's just a great way to look at it. It's just, you know, if if you have any concerns, uh, I would say it this way, just just take responsibility for yourself. We're not creating a bunch of rules for you guys. We've left a lot of liberty in the way we're doing things, a lot of opportunities for you guys to worship in whatever way you feel fit. Uh, But just be safe, be smart. So I was kind of proud of my son that when, as soon as he heard he had been around this other guy that had gotten it, uh, he immediately self-isolated himself, and he's, I said, oh, did the school make you do that? And he says, no, they haven't contacted me yet, but I'm just, I'm just trying to be smart. And I just thought, man, that's, that's pretty good for a kid, <laughs> you know. I guess 18-year-olds, maybe he's not a kid, but whatever. Uh, all that to be said, uh, just, just love one another and care about one another. Uh, let's, let's try not to uh, chase people away from the gospel because of our preferences about how we handle these things. Uh, let's make sure that we're loving in both directions. Uh, if you're one who thinks everybody should wear a mask and you see somebody without a mask, don't be chasing them down either and chastising them. Uh, it's not your place. It's not your purpose. You're responsible for you, and you're responsible to love others. And so that's all I'm asking of you guys. Uh, that being said, though, we have some exciting stuff because we're in the Bible tonight, and you're like, finally, my preference is that you would shut up and preach. And so out of humility, I will get right into the preaching. Uh, we are in Matthew chapter 10, working our way one chapter a week through the entire New Testament. Pretty excited about this, a five-year plan uh, that we have here. So uh, we're going to pick up uh, Matthew chapter 10 by actually looking at Matthew chapter 9 real quick. But uh, as we do this, uh, just one thing I want to encourage us every time we get together in the Word, that we look for one thing that God is showing us in the passage uh, and be ready to share it with other people. Uh, that holds you accountable. It makes you think through these things. The other thing I would say uh, is then plan to do that thing. It's not good enough to just hear from God and then build up your own knowledge, which then kind of puffs us up, we're told in Scripture, but actually kind of look for ways to apply the Scripture in your own life. Uh, I don't feel like I can make that decision for you guys in every individual life, but I do think the Spirit of God is speaking to you guys. So be prepared for that. As we get into Matthew 10, I'll just ask God that question right now. Lord, show me something in Matthew 10 that I can change about myself to conform more to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, to be more like Him. Uh, Maybe you can see some cool things in there, but I just want to remind you at the end of chapter 9, Jesus is speaking in verse 36, and it says, Seeing the people, He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then He said to His disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And then immediately now, when we get to chapter 10, he sends workers into the harvest. So he saw that the people were distressed and dispirited. He knew that there was more work in sharing the gospel than he was going to be able to do. And so he immediately is going to send people out. And that's what we'll see here in chapter 10 tonight is Jesus sending out the 12 apostles. So in verse 1, Jesus summons his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. And so we're going to be looking now at those instructions that he's going to send these guys out with. Uh, I do think it is an interesting list whenever you see a list of the uh, disciples, the apostles. Uh, Actually, what you're seeing happen here is a change of title for them. They were the disciples. The disciples are learners or followers of Jesus Christ. But now those followers are going to change of title. They're going to be called apostles Apostle means not follower, but one who is sent out, almost as if they're an ambassador now for Jesus. They've been sent out by Jesus Christ. So we're seeing a change for them, which was probably a little bit of a freaky change, right? Like their life was going along smoothly. Everything was going fine. They're fishermen, they're tax collectors, they're zealots, you know, rebellious people looking to overthrow the government, you know, but whatever. Uh, But you have these different groups of people. These guys had these different lives that they were living, but then they ran across our Savior, Jesus Christ, and he says, follow me. And so they did. They just stopped what they were doing. They started following Jesus everywhere he went. Now, following Jesus, pretty simple. Jesus goes left, I go left. Jesus goes right, I go right. I'm just going to follow him. Pretty simple. Now Jesus says, go. That's a different command. I have some questions. Like, what does that look like? It was so much easier when I just had to imitate him, just copy him, just do the things he did. But now you're sending me out apart from you. It was part of the thing he promised, though. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so he's now getting them into that fishers of men phase. Before this, it was the follow him phase, the learn from him phase. But now it's the get to work phase. So we see this list of these 12 guys. Uh, There's several things that are actually interesting about the list. I don't want to go into too much detail on the list because it's not that important. But uh, just note this. He's listing them out in twos. So Simon and his brother Andrew, James and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew. And you'll see that that was just one of the things he did when he sent out his disciples at different times. He would send them out in twos. And so you're kind of getting to see who was paired up with who. Uh, The other thing I think is fascinating, he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the careers of many of the people. He only mentions two people's careers. Matthew, the tax collector, that means he was working for the Roman government, And Simon the Zealot, which means he was working to overthrow the Roman government. And these two guys, he puts on the same team. Gotta love Jesus, don't you? That's just such a powerful statement to me. I mean, really, it's it's like... uh, It's like taking, like, most patriotic American on planet Earth, a government employee, and pairing him up with Antifa. Saying, why don't you just, two guys, let's just join the same team and work together. I mean, it's almost like he's telling us today, I'm pretty sure I could save both a Democrat and a Republican. Want to watch? 
And I think what's beautiful about this is uh, these people are now identified by who they are in Jesus Christ. Like, this is changing. They didn't go back to work the next day. It wasn't this idea that, well, you know, we're going we're gonna to bring these people on the team so they can be more like each other. No, they're coming onto this team, and the thing that unites them together is they're becoming like Jesus Christ, because we sometimes see this a little bit different. I'm going to win the other side to Jesus so that they can have the same political views as me. It's so backwards, isn't it? But it's how we see Christians talk all the time. It's really kind of annoying to me as a pastor, by the way, because it's a complete distraction from the gospel. An absolute distraction from the gospel. Jesus can save the most right-wing crazy guy and the most, that's the wrong hand, the most right-wing crazy guy and the most left-wing crazy guy, and he can bring them together under the cross. It's a powerful statement of what the gospel is doing. Anyway, I spent way too much time on that because I didn't really want to get to any of that. What we really want to get to, though, he's sending these apostles out on this mission. And before we look at this, I don't want us to get confused. Don't think that the instructions that he gives them are instructions to you. These are instructions given to 12 specific guys for one specific trip. They're for a time and a purpose. Now, there are some things in here that will be universal. Certainly, we can apply. There's a whole section starting in chapter uh, 10, verse 24, where he changes from apostles again to disciples. This is for everybody, but this is one specific trip. Now, right now, you're not sure that you believe that. Wait till you hear the instructions, and then you'll be like, oh, yeah, he wasn't talking to us. It'll become more clear here in a minute. So the way I like to approach Scripture is I like to put myself in the passage to imagine that I was one of these 12 guys. I'm not going to tell you which one of the 12, but just I like to imagine I'm one of these 12 guys. And I've just kind of left everything to follow Jesus, and now he's telling me to go away and do something else. And I'm trying to, to, to think through what that does to my life now. What am I supposed to do? What's next? And so uh, I have questions. I have questions that I would ask, and thankfully in Jesus' instructions, he's going to answer all those questions. In fact, I have 10 questions, so I'm going to try to go through them quickly. Question number one uh, would just be this, where should we go? Like, I've just been following you everywhere, Jesus. Now you're telling me, go, go where? I can't make that kind of decision on my own. I can't be held with that kind of responsibility. Where am I supposed to go? Well, Jesus answers them like this in verse 5, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So for Jesus, the place he was sending them was not necessarily a city or a destination. It was to a people group. He was sending them to the Jews who were not yet followers of Jesus, who is their Messiah. He's starting there. Now, we might see this as a a little bit racist. He's saying, don't go to the Samaritans, half-bred Jews. Don't don't go to the Gentiles. Hey, that's me. That kind of hurts a little bit. Why wouldn't Jesus want to come talk to me? Don't go to those groups. I want you to go to the Jews. Now, don't let that distract you too much because when we get to verse 18, he's going to show us that he actually does have a plan to get to the Gentiles, but he's going to do that by first going through the Jews. You probably won't like the plan. It's a bad plan Uh, from our perspective. Great plan worked out wonderfully for Jesus. But when you see this, uh, it'll kind of make more sense to you. So let's just keep going on. Here's another question I would have. Now that I know where I'm supposed to go, what am I supposed to do? Like, when I go out, what am I supposed to do? So in verses 7 and 8, he gives us instructions as to what we're supposed to do or what the apostles are supposed to do. As you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, which if you read wrong, could sound like you're giving bath to leopards. That's not what's happening. Cast out demons. 
And so he kind of gives this quick list. This is what I want you to do. So while you're going out to the lost sheep of Israel, this is what I want you to do. Number one, I want you to proclaim, I want you to preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I also want you to heal people, and I want you to cast out demons. Kind of three things, or four things, really, if you don't count raising the dead is the same as healing. So he's sending these guys out. And this is the thing. I don't think all of us have been called to the ministry of raising the dead or casting out demons or healing the sick, although some people might have been. But in general, I don't think this is a universal application to all believers. Not all of us have those giftings from God. But I do think there is a connection to that first one. I think as you go throughout the Scripture in the New Testament that all of us have been asked in certain ways through the Great Commission and other ways to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But when you're preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand, make sure you understand what you're saying in that. He's saying, I need you to immigrate from the kingdom you live in to this new kingdom. I need you to transfer your membership from the kingdom of earth to the kingdom of heaven. I need you to transfer who you see as your leader from your earthly president or your earthly ruler or king, in their case, or your Caesar, to the new king, the real king, the Lord of heaven. It's this transferring of your nationality to a certain extent, your citizenship to becoming a citizen of heaven. And he's saying that kingdom is at hand, which means it's within reach. It's right here. It's right now. It's very present. There's this reality of this. And he's asking people, these preachers, these 12 guys that he sends out to proclaim this to the Jews, that the kingdom they're part of, they need to leave and they need to enter into the kingdom of heaven. I think that's a a simple but important practical point for us to grasp here. Yes, we are citizens here on earth of an individual country. In our case, because we live in Cheyenne, we're probably citizens of this country, the United States of America. But that citizenship is under our higher calling, our higher citizenship to the kingdom of God, to the kingdom of heaven. Our earthly citizenship is subordinate to our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned about the way things go here. I'm very political in my mindset. I think through these things less now than I used to. I used to be like really involved in it, and then it just found out it was just like a lot of work and effort and <laughs> exhausting. Ended up in a lot of arguments and some broken relationships. But uh, I really do think it's important. Like, I live in America, so I want America to do well because that's good for me. I want that to be for my kids. I want the freedoms that it brings to us. I think those are important things. I live in this country. I want this country to do well. For me in particular, uh, man, freedom of religion is such a key to what we do as a church. This freedom to, to worship in the way that we do, that's important for me. And so I want to fight for those things. I voted just this last week. If you need help, bring your ballot to me. I'll fill it out for you. It'll be fine. Just return it. It's great. Save you all kinds of heartache, right? <laughs> I'm involved in those things, but I don't trust in those things. The difference for us as Christians to recognize the government is just a tool, but the government is not the, government is not the solution to anything. The solution is surrender to Jesus Christ. The government is just a tool that He uses. Now, if you're living in a different country, you might have a completely different experience. We have a very unique American experience, but if you're living in a different country, your government is involved in the process of preventing you from worshiping altogether. 
We're very blessed in what we have here. We should be thankful for it. We just shouldn't allow that to become our first and primary citizenship. We have to balance those things out. And I think sometimes it's tough to do because it's easy to be passionate about something that everybody's already arguing about. So you just pick a side. Your side, obviously, the right side. I wasn't saying right or left. I'm just saying correct side. So the next thing he's instructing them there is they need to go out and they need to heal people. Uh, they, so this is the instructions to proclaim the gospel, to heal the sick, to cast out demons, uh, to raise the dead, these types of things. So these are some very important things. They're things that Jesus did, but I certainly, again, I don't think these are things that all of us have the power to do. What we're seeing here is they were given a special authority to do this. In verse 1, Jesus said he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. There's no indication that he gave that authority to every believer at this point in Scripture. There's no indication that they had this authority for the rest of their life or that they ever had this authority before this moment. It was for a specific purpose to accomplish something. Not to say I don't believe that we shouldn't, uh, that there aren't, isn't this ability to cast out demons within the church. I also don't believe that there is no healing in the world today. None of those things are things I believe are true. I'm just saying that the, we don't want to take these as instructions to us. These instructions were for these 12 people. We want to find the difference between those universal things and those things that we have here. But now I have another question. Now that I know what we do, and it's really cool stuff, healing people, raising the dead, casting out demons, preaching the gospel, what do I get a charge for these things? Like, I've been to a doctor. They charge me for my healing, right? What's the bottom line? What do I get a charge? Well, Jesus' answer to them is, freely you have received and freely you will give. So these 12 guys are supposed to do this, and they're supposed to charge people nothing for these great services. So they're just going to go out into the world. Well, now I have more questions. If I'm not charging anything, how am I going to take care of myself during this time? I mean, am I supposed to just pack everything I need? And that's my next question. What should I take on this trip? What are the things that I'm going to need to bring with me? So he gives us this kind of interesting list, really in verse 9 and 10. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. In other words, he's sending them out on a journey and he's basically telling them to pack light. How light? So light. I don't want you to bring any money. I don't want you to bring your suitcase with you. You can bring one coat, one pair of sandals, I'm assuming, not just one sandal or else you'd be walking with a lisp. Eh, same thing. <laughs> one staff, right? Just one? Like, I've packed to go on a trip before. That's not how that works. I mean, it's different for me than it is for my wife. When she packs, it's a whole new thing. It's a week-long process, stacking things and sorting things, and this shirt and this shirt doesn't go. And throughout the days, it just kind of all magically builds into this amazing, well-thought-out wardrobe. And then she gets her toiletry bag, and she unhooks it, and it's like thump, 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 thump. And there's all these little sections just full of stuff. She goes through this whole process, and I'm just watching it all, just waiting for the night before or the morning of, depending on what time we're leaving. We're not leaving too early. I can pack that morning. And I count. We're going to be gone one, two, three, four days, four pairs of underwear, I take the top four. It's not that hard. I'm going to need four shirts. So I go to my closet and I start on the left and I take the next four shirts because that's how I pick my clothes. And when those are dirty, I put them in the wash, I clean them and they go on the right-hand side and it just rotates through all my clothing. Shouldn't be that hard. And then I walk into the bathroom, grab my toothbrush, my toothpaste and my deodorant, stick them in her giant toiletry bag and I'm good to go. This is even less than I'm bringing. By the way, funny story. You may not want to hear this, but still funny story. 
I thought I was going to try to be cool like her this last weekend when we went to this conference. And I'm like, you know, I just don't know what shirt I want to wear to the conference. So I packed my shorts and I picked three shirts. I'm going to wear one of these shirts. Funny thing happened, tore my shorts the first night. Only had one pair of shorts, which was awesome because then I knew I'm supposed to wear the longest shirt. And so everything worked out fine. I just wore the long shirt and I sat down a lot. The conference was wonderful. Um, So Jesus is sending these guys out, though. He's basically sending them out saying, there's no way you're going to be able to provide for yourself. No money. You only have one coat, one pair of shoes. You only have one bag or no bag. You only have one uh, staff with you. He's just like sending them out with not a lot, which then brings to mind a whole new question. What am I supposed to eat? This is the only part of packing I do well. Like if we're taking a road trip, that's where I take a week. I stop by Walmart, I stop by Minimart, I stop by Albertsons, I stop by King Supers. I got to get all the right snacks, I think it through, hmm, how many hours are you going to be in the car? Like, it's this whole process, and then I pack a bag full of snacks for the car. This is very important stuff. He's telling me I'm not supposed to even bring a bag. And in addition to that, he's basically telling us the way that we're going to eat, he says the worker is worthy of his support. Now, that might not sound obvious to you that he's talking about eating. But that word there, and it's literally translated in the center column of my Bible, that word support is literally nourishment or food. In other words, he's saying, when I send you 12 out, you're just going to eat what other people give you. He's, he's forcing these guys to trust in him and the people that they're ministering to. He's teaching them, I think, a little bit of a lesson here. But that brings to me another question. Like, what hotel are we staying at? Like, is this the Motel 6 type situation, or should I bring my swimsuit? Is there going to be a pool where we're staying? Like, these are the kind of things we have to kind of start to think through. I have another question. Well, what's interesting about this, listen to this. He says, in verse 11, whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it. Stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. So now he's basically saying, when you get to town, just start asking around, who's worthy in this town? And when you find somebody worthy, just say, hey, I'm bunking with you tonight. Well, that's not quite enough description for me. How do I determine who's worthy? Well, interestingly enough, he's going to describe that for us at the end of the chapter. Uh, Like I said, there is this digression in the middle He's going to get into talking about persecution and what it means to be a disciple in the midst of persecution, and he's going to return right back to this concept of who the worthy house is. He describes those as worthy in verse 37. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Essentially, Anybody who doesn't love Jesus more than anybody else, including themselves, is not worthy. That's the worthy house. And so essentially what he's saying, though, is is stay with other believers in Jesus Christ. That's essentially what he's saying. Now, we'll break that down a little bit more when we hit it the second time, because there's actually some really difficult stuff in there for us to grasp. But that's where he's telling us to stay. Well, what if I get to a town and nobody wants me to stay there? What if they reject me? What if they're not nice to me, right? And so he covers that as well in verse 13. But if it is not worthy, take your blessing of peace 
Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. And so if you get to a place and there's nobody worthy there, he says basically just shake off your feet and take your blessing with you. They're not worthy and they're not worthy to have you in their home. That's basically what he's saying. Well, wait a second, if I get there and people might reject me, is there any indication that maybe it might be worse than that? That might pe- people might go beyond rejecting me? Like they might be mean to me at some point? I don't know if you've ever had that question come up, but if you've ever had this moment where you feel like God is saying, I want you to proclaim the gospel to somebody, a coworker, a friend, a family member. For some reason, it bothers me where with family members sometimes, but uh, where I just have this moment where I think to myself, if this doesn't go well, they may never speak to me again. If this doesn't go well, it might break a relationship. Like what happens if, if they don't receive this? Jesus is going to take it even farther than that. He's basically going to say, oh, it's not just that some people won't receive it. They're going to flat out hate you. They're going to be mean to you. They're going to beat you up. They're going to throw you into jail. They're going to persecute you. Trip getting scary yet? So here's what he says about that. He says, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now there's an image for you. Normally we see that backwards. There's a bunch of sheep and one wolf kind of sneaks in. Now he's saying there's a flock of wolves and he's sending one sheep in. That's a little bit scarier of a circumstance. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpent and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you are to say." For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Brother will betray brother to death, father and his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you that you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes." So now I'm asking this question, like, is this going to be a bad trip? Like, this is going to be a difficult trip to go on, right? Uh, Essentially, he's saying, yes, that you're going to be persecuted, that you're going to get to some cities, and the Jews are going to take you before the synagogues, and they're going to scourge you, which means they're going to beat you. Then they're going to hand you over to the Roman authorities. You're going to be arrested, and you're going to have to give a defense for what you believe before the Roman, the Gentile authorities. But what I love about this is he says, here's one of the reasons I want you to be persecuted. Now he's speaking to the 12 here, but maybe in this you can find some universal application, but he's certainly speaking to the 12 in this case. He says this in verse 18, you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. So in this persecution, you're going to be taken from the Jews to the Gentiles, is what he's telling the apostles. And that's great, because now the Gentiles have to listen to you. See, before, if a Jewish fisherman or a Jewish tax collector or a Jewish uh, uh, revolt, rebel, anti-fa guy were to show up and say, hey, have you met Jesus? Can I tell you about my friend Jesus? They'd be like, why would I listen to you? This has no bearing on my life. I don't care about your Jewish God. I don't, none of this means anything to me. But in this circumstance, when you've been arrested and you've been put in their court, they're now required to listen to you. 
Now they have to hear what you say. It's an opportunity for the gospel to be proclaimed. Just kind of a simple little thing that he does there. But this is his way that he's going to bring it from the Jews and then through persecution, send to the Gentiles. And you'll actually see that's a pattern throughout the rest of the New Testament. The apostles in the book of Acts, they would go to a city, they would start in the synagogues until they made everybody mad there, and then they would go to the Gentiles. They'd be chased out of the synagogues, uh, which would then give them some street cred, I guess, with the Gentiles, and now the Gentiles are ready to listen to them. And through that, the gospel then spread throughout the Gentile world, which, by the way, that's us. Yay, Gentile world. Yay, persecution of those guys all those years ago. Not so much for us. We're not a big fan of that. The other thing I think that he says is cool about persecution is when you get in those circumstances, it's going to be the Spirit of God who speaks for you. So don't even worry about what you're going to say. So I'm not supposed to take a bag or an extra set of shoes, and I'm not even supposed to prepare in advance what I'm going to say when I stand in court to defend myself. Because he's going to allow the Spirit of God to speak through you. And by the way, if it's the Spirit of God speaking through you, I'm pretty sure he was going to say some better stuff than you would have prepared for yourself. There's just kind of this powerful thing where Jesus is empowering them. Now, uh, an interesting thing happens in this. He also gives this final instruction in verse 23. It should be common sense, but he's just going to lay it out for us. He says, by the way, if you get to a city and they persecute you, just leave. Like, that shouldn't be that hard of a deal, right? Like, why didn't I think about that? Oh, yeah, if they're beating me up at that place, maybe I should try another place. But essentially what he's saying For this group of people, for that time, that's exactly what he wanted them to do because he's trying to spread the gospel quickly throughout the Jewish world at that time. And so they're going to the places that are recipient or who are receiving the gospel well. Remember, he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Fishermen don't fish where the fish aren't biting. So if you go to a city and the fish aren't biting, if nobody's responding well to the gospel, go to another city until you find a city where the people are responding. That was his instructions to the 12. But understand if you look at the rest of the scripture, both in the Old Testament prophets and a lot of the New Testament, a lot of people were sent to places intentionally by God to do the hard work of breaking up the ground in areas where they would be persecuted. So that's not a universal thing for all people, but it's certainly a nice little common sense thing that it's okay unless God has specifically called you to a terrible area. It's okay to leave if that area is terrible. But if God specifically called you to be in a terrible place like Jeremiah, I want you to preach your whole life and nobody's ever going to receive your message. All right, God, I'm on it. Kind of freeing, really. Like, how was your sermon? Just like God intended. Nobody heard it. Amen, brother. Keep up the good work. Like, that's kind of encouraging, really. But anyway, never have to worry. Yeah, I I prayed. I I preached the sermon. What was the response? Everything God wanted it to be. No response. So he gives that last instruction, but this is where he begins to turn. He now takes, again, this, uh, this idea that he's speaking more universally to disciples, not just to the 12 here, but he's giving just a general teaching to the 12 that applies to all disciples in verse 24 when he says, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. And this is really when I would begin to ask that next question, beyond what if they're mean to me, hey, you're making this trip sound pretty scary. What if I get scared along the way? So Jesus now says, here's a deal for disciples to understand. This is something I want you to know. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciple that he becomes like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known." 
What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body. That's kind of funny. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the Father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear, you are more valuable than many sparrows. He's going to give us uh, four specific things here to recognize how to respond as a disciple to persecution. The first thing is this. If they made fun of Jesus, they will make fun of you because you're becoming like Jesus. Uh, Said in a very simple way, I would say this. The more people persecute you because of Jesus Christ, the more you're becoming like Jesus Christ. It becomes more evident that you're becoming like him. The world, those who are opposed to Jesus Christ, if they hate him, they will hate you. But if they can't recognize Jesus in you, then something's wrong not with them, but with you. Now, how far would these people go to harass Jesus? It's interesting he mentions this. It says, they called the head of the house Beelzebul. How much more will they malign the members of the household? That's us believers. Uh, That phrase, Beelzebul, is interesting. We connect it uh, oftentimes to the the god of Ekron, Beelzebub, which is lord of the demons or lord of the flies. But the Jews had changed it when they spoke to Jesus from Beelzebub, lord of the demons, which would refer to like Satan, right? But they changed it to Beelzebul, which is lord of the dung, And so if they're treating Jesus like he is the Lord of dung, don't be surprised when they treat you like dung. That's his first response, to respond to persecution, to recognize they're persecuting you because you're like me and they hate me. Second thing is this, and the last three really will all be about fear. He says this, uh, he says, don't fear them because everything concealed will be revealed. And I can see that applying in two different ways. Uh, The first is this, everything that they did to you, they will have to make a stand before God for. They're going to be judged for those things. It will be revealed what they did to you. The second part of it, though, is that everything you revealed to them will someday be revealed to be truth. They will have to stand before God and hear the same gospel that you proclaimed to them. It will be revealed to them. It's one of the ways we can withstand persecution to recognize that there is a day of reckoning for them. Uh, The next is this. Well, what's the worst they could do? Kill you? That doesn't sound very comforting, right? But in perspective of things, he's saying, look, they can kill your body, but they cannot take your eternal soul. Paul says something very similar, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I can either glorify God while I'm living or live eternally with God in glory in heaven. They can't take that away from you. And so in my life, I'm going to live in such a way that glorifies God, and in my death, I will live in the glory of God. There's nothing they can do to you to remove that eternal glory that you have in the presence of God. And then lastly, he gives this example of a sparrow. He says, look, a sparrow sold for one penny, and yet I know every single time one of those guys dies. God says, you're more valuable than them. In other words, God's paying attention to all of this. 
So now we get into this next section here. Those are kind of those four ways to respond, and I would think that's more universal to all disciples, but he kind of closes it out with a couple of things here. The first is really hard teaching. In verse 32, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword." For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. It answers the next question that I would have is, what is the purpose of this trip? And what Jesus is saying is the purpose of this trip was not to bring peace, but to bring the sword or to bring division. And that's how sword works, right? If you swing it right, it divides your head from your body. You swing it right, it divides your leg from your body. Like you're you're using the sword well. It it brings division. He's going to use this later in the book of Hebrews as well, this same picture of the sword dividing uh, between, uh, between bone and spirit, flesh and spirit. It's kind of a cool little picture that he has there. But it's certainly true as he starts to list out the division that's going to happen on earth. There's going to be division even within families. And some of you have already recognized that. Divisions within your own family. And that dividing line is Jesus Christ. I have family members that won't talk to me because of stands I've taken for Jesus Christ. Just won't talk to me. It's going to happen. Jesus will bring division Because he's dividing out those who are in his kingdom and those who are not in his kingdom. He's making it abundantly clear. And that division sometimes lands in the midst of your families. Setting man against his father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, which according to sitcoms was going to happen anyway. There was nothing that could be done about that. Uh, Man's enemies will be in his own household. And that's where he gets into that. So unless... Or as he says it here, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Now look, I can intellectually agree with that concept. Like Jesus spoke into the darkness and created everything, including me. He's deserving of of my love. He really is. And I can recognize as the creator of everything that I should worship the creator above any creation. But if I were to just twist that question, just so you can understand what he's saying, he's saying this, disciple in Jesus Christ, let me ask you a question Do you love God more than you love your parents? Do you love God, parents, more than you love your children? A couple kids just looked at mom like, (gasps) (laughs) isn't that what he's asking? Man, he really goes after it, by the way, in the gospel of Luke. Luke, he makes it even more emphatic. When Luke tells the story, it's more emphatic. It's not, do you love them more than you love Jesus? It's, do you hate them and love me? And Luke really gets under my skin, too, because he adds one more person to the list that Matthew doesn't mention. Do you hate your wife more than you love Jesus? Okay, now he's just out of bounds, right? Like, come on, guys. Like, that's a real deal concern, but it's, again, intellectually, total sense. Creator of everything, woman I really like. Obviously, I'm supposed to love him more, but in the day-to-day, what does that look like? 
I mean, if somebody was looking at my life or your life and asking the question, who do they love more, would they recognize that you love your spouse more or God more? How would they recognize that? Sheila and I actually played this out this morning, not intentionally, just the way it kind of worked, but last night we had fajitas, and uh, by personal law of mine, when you have fajitas, you're required to have soda because soda tastes, or Mexican food always tastes better with soda. I don't know if you guys know that. It's just true. Just check it on me. It's it's fine. You'll figure it out someday. But if you have fajitas for dinner and you have soda, now you've had caffeine and you're up all night. And so we just couldn't get to sleep last night. In fact, even after we went to sleep, I got out of bed again and went back to the scriptures and just read through the sermon again because I was just like, I cannot sleep. So we're up really late last night. And then the alarm goes off at like 530 this morning. uh, And I thought to myself, I do not want to get out of this bed. But I did because I'm a man. So the alarm went off, I got up, I got out of bed, I got in the shower, I got out of the shower, and Sheila was still in bed, and I thought, man, that looks really good right now. So I crawled back into the bed, and we had a little bit of cuddle time, and I thought to myself, I am, I'm never getting out of this bed. Just Sheila and I hanging out in this bed, and wouldn't you know it, Jesus brings these verses to my mind, and I'm like, all right. So I set up and I said, Jesus, or I said, Sheila, sorry, see what happens? <laughs> I said, Sheila, God created us to serve his people today. It's time that we got up. And she's like, yeah, and how wonderful that he's letting us serve his creation. Kind of this cool moment where in that moment we set aside what we really would have done, which was just continue to cuddle in bed till about 10 a.m., maybe getting out of bed just to get food. But it was cold out. Who wants to get out from underneath those covers? We set that aside, our time together, so that we could do the thing that God had asked us to do that day. It's a very small thing, but for us, it's a powerful thing to be reminded of that. In that moment, it was just, it's almost like dirty play. Like, are you kidding me? Now you're going to say this to me? You had all week to talk to me about this passage, Jesus, but you're going to wait for this moment? But yeah. It's just this kind of cool moment where we've got to actually live out that scripture for us where we made a decision as much as we loved each other in that moment, we were going to do the thing that God asked us to do. It's those little, simple decisions. It's a powerful testimony of our love for God. But we continue that on. We end it with this last little section here, verse 40 through 42. Uh, I say that verse 40 through 42 is actually response to verse 14 Uh, There are those who are going to receive you into their homes. And then in verse 14, those who do not receive you into your home, uh, receive you into their homes. But the the reality is uh, that he who receives you is actually, as it says here, receiving Jesus Christ. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. And him who receives a prophet in the name of prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. It's just a reminder for the people in the cities and most of the time, let's be honest, we're not the apostles going out. Most of the time we're the people in the cities. That we have the ability to bless God by blessing his sent out ones. 
And we do that by inviting people into our homes. We do that by sharing our food with people, other believers who are out there doing the work of God. We do that uh, in some ways through prayer support. We do that in some ways by sending monthly support. Some of you guys sponsor uh, missionaries and things like that. You do it in that way. I think one very simple way uh, that we end up doing it is as we give to the church sometimes, just understand that a portion of that money is used to pay the wages and the provision for those who serve Him in the church. So there's simple ways that we end up doing that. And what I love about the way he words it here, he says, even if you just give one of these people just a cup of cold water, like that is like literally the smallest thing you could think of to do, right? Just give a cup of water to somebody who's thirsty. God says, I'll reward you for that. As you did it to them, it's like you did it for Jesus, he says. So this is the thing that's more universal in this passage, not being the sent out ones, but the one who receives those who are sent out in his name. It's the way that we treat other disciples. It's the way we treat other believers. Jesus will bring this same image up in Matthew chapter 25. He has this, this parable where he's separating the sheep from the goats. And they're like, well, how do you know which is a sheep and which is a goat? And he says, well, it's simple. The sheep are the ones who gave me something to drink when I was thirsty, something to eat when I was hungry, who visited me when I was sick, who came to me when I was in prison. And all the people that are the sheep, they're going to be like, uh, I don't actually remember bringing you a drink of water, Jesus. I don't remember bringing you a meal. Certainly don't remember visiting you while you're sick or visiting you while in prison. And he says, as much as you do this for one of the least of mine, for one of these little ones of mine, for any one of Jesus' disciples, as much as you do this for other believers, it's as if you're doing it for me and there's a reward for you in doing it. Now, we don't do it for the rewards, but it's certainly a reminder that those rewards are out there. All right. I have spent way too much time on that. Just know you got a five-minute faster version than second service. So, yeah, that's pretty exciting, right? I'll have to get back in the habit of this whole preaching thing to get it down into the right amount of time. But uh, next week in preparation for the sermon, if you would be reading Matthew chapter 11, just read through it every day and let God begin to prepare your hearts for the things that we're going to receive in church. As you do that, I, I promise you that God will speak to you more clearly from his word because you've been in the word more. It's just a powerful thing that I believe that God does. So let's go ahead. I'm going to go to the Lord in prayer and... Maybe there'll be a closing song, although I don't see Doug anywhere. But I won't sing it for you because I have to go change for a baptism. <laughs> Heavenly Father, so thankful for today and the chance to be in your word. I would pray, Lord, that as we're in your word, uh, that you would use this to mold us and to make us in the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Well, Father, I'm so thankful for those that you've sent out, that those who have been sent out came to me one day, uh, that I could receive the gospel. And Lord, I'm thankful for those who have cared for other believers who've cared for me over the years. Lord, I pray that you'll help me to be more like them, to help me to, to live out the gospel more clearly in these things. Father, for each of us here today, I pray that your Holy Spirit is, is finding one aspect of this passage that for them is going to conform them more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, that there would be one challenge in here that your Spirit is asking them to take up whether it's Christian hospitality or helping them recognize that maybe they worship someone or even themselves more than they love you. But Lord, help make those things clear in our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.